One of the great publishing success stories of recent years has been the Left Behind series of books, a string of novels that purport to put in contemporary terms many of the events and personalities that we encounter in the book of Revelation. I recently had a breakfast here in Oak Brook and was approached by an individual who, it turned out, was one of the publishers of that series. And I asked him just this past Friday what it was about this series that seemed to have caught the imagination and interest of an almost unprecedented number of people, Christian and non-Christian alike. I think it's this, he said. Suddenly, the book of Revelation is coming alive. Suddenly, people are able to perceive, even in the events of our times, something of what God spoke to us long ago. And they find the the promises of the book of Revelation seem more plausible than ever. I don't know how many of you have read any of the books in that Left Behind series, but Today, I'd like to at least begin by giving you a picture of something of what they suggest to us about this book. They picture, for example, the rise of a one-world system of government, fueled by people's exhaustion with the inability of parochial governments to solve the great social and political troubles of our time. They furthermore detail the gradual development of a universal economy made possible by an explosion in information technology and the progressive union of states and businesses and institutions of all kinds. They furthermore show how there might arise a new global religion that brought about an end to much of the sectarian strife that had raged in less civilized times. In short, the Left Behind series pictures an era of unprecedented peace, of prosperity and and pleasure, a veritable golden age of humanity, a new Babylon, as it is called. And yet, although we can see shades of circumstances that are already suggestive of events in our time, as we read further into the series, it becomes clearer and clearer that all is not as light as it seems. For behind all of these seemingly natural and benevolent developments in human society and spirituality, there lies a supernatural and malevolent will. And through a variety of human puppets, a hideously evil intelligence is setting up a world and a future in which none of us would want to live. It is a world in which a horrifying moral decadence is accepted increasingly in the name of religious tolerance. It is a world in which despotic power is accepted and and even revered in the name of necessary progress. And it is a world in which anyone who stands up for God's vision of life will be systematically marked, maligned, 
marginalized, and ultimately murdered for their faith. All in the name of peace. It is in this context that God then pours out upon the earth a series of plagues and angelic warriors which ultimately overthrow evil and usher in a genuinely hopeful and holy age. The Left Behind series makes for extremely compelling reading. And at its core, it espouses what biblical scholars would call the futurist understanding of Revelation. That is, it understands Revelation as essentially describing the sorts of figures and phenomena that we should expect to rise up sometime out in the future. As God brings to fulfillment his plan for humanity, It must be said, however, that there is at least one other way to look at this last book of the Bible, and one which must be kept in mind even as we are titillated by this increasingly pervasive futurist view of this text. That second way is what scholars call the preterist view. In that understanding, Revelation is regarded as not detailing future occurrences, but rather past ones. And while I admit that the preterist view doesn't make for anything like as suspenseful a motion picture as the Left Behind series does, it also bears some very serious consideration, too. Those who believe in this interpretation of the book suggest that Revelation is obviously describing people and events that are native to the first century in which the vision was originally given to John. Like the political cartoons of today, its figures would have been obvious to anybody who lived in that time and only seem to us now the kind of nonsense that donkeys and elephants will seem years down the road to some later political generation. Much as the allies during World War II used code terms like overlord to describe their operations or to name the enemy's movements, so the book of Revelation, the preterists tell us, detail the terms of engagement and predict the final outcome of a great spiritual battle that even then was raging in the fields and villages of first century Asia Minor. It simply does so in code language so that Christians would not be imprisoned if they were found holding this document or it fell into enemy hands. This covert quality is what is intended, the preterist interpretation says, when the book of Revelation says that interpretation of the imagery is left for a mind with wisdom, for those that can read the times. 
Now, since the time of Daniel in the 6th century B.C., it was true that the ancient Jews had used the imagery of a beast to describe any particularly nasty political power. It's not native only to the future or to our reading of the text. In fact, the very worst of oppressors were given the even darker epithet of Babylon, since it was the Babylonians who had committed the unthinkably vile act of tearing down the great temple at Jerusalem, of seducing the best and the brightest of Israel's youth into following after pagan gods and supporting these pagan causes and and ultimately of demanding that their kings be worshipped as divine. By the end of the first century A.D., Jews and Christians alike clearly regarded Rome as the new Babylon. After a Jewish revolt in Palestine failed in 70 A.D., the Romans had also destroyed the Jerusalem temple as the Babylonians had, and the Roman culture was now increasingly stealing the hearts and imaginations of the young as well. And for understandable reasons. You see, the years leading up to the Christian century ones of terrible civic disorder and international war and economic chaos. And when Caesar Augustus finally rose to power in 29 B.C., he ushered in an unprecedented era of law and order that was greeted as salvation by many. As the Roman forces eliminated piracy on the high seas and established superb new roads and and dependable court systems, commerce began to flourish and spread out as never before. And not surprisingly, many young Jews and Christians became almost intoxicated with the thought of what life in this increasingly globalized, open society could mean for them. And they became, many of them, de facto, if not nominal converts, to the Roman approach to life, to security, to hope, to fulfillment. And it was not too long before the zealous supporters, the most zealous supporters of the Roman way, began to suggest that this genius of the Caesars was almost godlike. No, it it was godlike. Who needs God when you have Caesar? And so by the time John writes down in words this vision given to him by God, there are now 35 cities in the Roman province of Asia Minor alone, a fairly small area that already have temples constructed for the worship of the divine Caesars. And when you as a Christian worship a God who says, to me alone bow down. And when you see, as the scripture says, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus, 
running in the gutters of martyrdom at the hands of this Caesar. And when you see this blood-stained scarlet beast growing drunker and drunker and more licentious and pernicious with its power, it's easy to understand why the most vile of emperors would be regarded as antichrist. Not surprisingly, those who believe in the preterist interpretation of Revelation are convinced that when we read about the great prostitute who sits on seven hills, we need look no further than Rome. The Rome of the first century. Which the great ancient writer Virgil actually called the city of seven hills. Increasingly, you couldn't get anywhere in life unless you were in bed with Rome. And preferential treatment was given to those citizens who volunteered their time to work at the imperial temples. And the coins you traded with bore the images of the Roman emperors portrayed as gods. And all of this and more may have been something of what Revelation actually means when it says no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark of the beast. It wasn't talking about microchips in the forehead or, or, or barcodes or any of those things. It was describing the circumstances of the first century. Even the number 666 is simply the official title of the Emperor Nero when the Hebrew letters for his name are translated into numbers. This is the preterist view. So which interpretation is right? That one or the futurist one? Does this book describe events that are long since past, but from which we might learn something? Or, or do they describe events and, and personalities that are, are yet to come? Or, or, or are they describing things that are happening now? I think the answer is yes. Yes. In the name of one who was who is and who is to come. You see, there is a third way of understanding the book of Revelation that goes by the name of the idealist view. The idealist view sees this book as giving symbolic description of timeless realities and struggles that do have very real, very practical, historical manifestations and applications in every age and whose ultimate fulfillment, consummation, is in the age to come. You see, in every age, dear ones, there's been a Babylon. In every age. In the first century, yesterday it may have been Rome. And today, if you believe what some of the Christians in other countries sometimes say, Babylon may actually be 
the decadent American culture. Or, or tomorrow, it may be some global entity, some techno-infused power, one-world system whose dimensions we're just starting to see take shape now. I don't know. The point is this. There have always been institutions and individuals susceptible to the influence of God's adversary, of the one who's been opposed to God from the beginning. And he infiltrates and influences whether his instruments know they're being used or not. And in every single season, his strategy has always been the same. One, tear down the places of true worship. Shake the very stones of faith. Scatter them if you can. Secondly, seduce young leaders, the brightest talent, into obsessively pursuing pleasure or power or possessions or any of those worldly sources of security and identity that Babylon can grant. And thirdly, deceive people into putting their ultimate faith in anything but God. While teaching at the great city of Caesarea Philippi in the far north of Galilee, Jesus spoke to a band of disciples who could easily have been the targets of such a strategy, as disciples in our time can easily be too. And so Jesus posed to them one of those magnificent questions that Jesus was always posing that was designed to help his listeners identify exactly where they stood, in this case, whether it was on this side or that side of the gates of Babylon, in a sense. Jesus asked, who do the people say that I am? It was a magnificent question. For its answer would define to some extent how the disciples understood his role and whether they would be committed to giving allegiance to this king and his kingdom and not the kingdom of Babylon. It was late in, earth, in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, and the disciples themselves could surely feel that opposition to him was growing, that Jesus was passing out of fashion and standing there with him in the midst of one of the most splendid of Rome's cities. Some of them must also have had moments when they wondered, as almost every believer does at one moment or another, whether they were foolish to stake their hopes on the way of of Christ instead of the way of the Caesars. After all, Babylon always looks so beautiful at her height. 
the scriptures say that they replied to his question by saying, some say you are John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that he is? It was then that the fisherman stepped forward and said, Why, you are the Christ, the name above all names, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the master of the Caesars of this world. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you can imagine Jesus with his slow smile spreading across his face and a sparkle of light in his eyes, gazing at that fisherman and saying to him, Ah, and you are Peter. And on this rock, this rock of faith, I will build my church and the gates of hell itself will not prevail against it. I've always loved that interchange. I've always loved that wonderful confession of faith. In this Jesus, there in the midst of the splendor of Caesar. But you know, I never fully understood the vision that Jesus was actually trying to picture until I went and visited Caesarea Philippi one day. You see, that ancient city is actually built up against the bottom of a great hill. And in the base of that rise, there was a cave in which had once been located a proud Roman temple guarded by great strong gates at the very mouth of that cave. Oh, it must have been a glorious symbol in its day. A glorious representation of the might of divine Rome. But what fills the eye of my mind even now is not that pagan temple. It is the towering rock of the cliff that rose above it. Hundreds and hundreds of feet of massive rock that the winds of time have hardly begun to even erode and the gates that once stood at the front of that little temple and the great empire that they once signified are gone today and the city that was once the jewel of the north of Palestine is but a ruin today. But you know what? The rock remains. The rock remains. And this is the message of the book of Revelation in Psalm. And it is God's word to every one of us who live in the midst of Babylon. 
and who were tempted to be overawed by Babylon or to serve Babylon. I will build my church, says the Lord, and the gates of hell itself will not prevail against it. Please pray with me. Glorious God, we come before you as a people who live in the midst of testing times. There is just so much in the glory of this world, in the explosion of the Internet and the wonder of entertainment and the attraction of affluence that would claim our attention and our allegiance. And some of us live so deeply behind Babylon's gates that we're at risk of even forgetting our true identity. Oh God, give us the ears to hear your voice calling to us today, speaking out our name, inviting us to come out of Babylon into the fuller life and light of citizenship in your kingdom. So enable us to walk from this place as befits those whose kingdom is not of this earth. And pleasing you with our every thought, word, and deed, you who gives us the power to prevail. And to that, Lord Jesus Christ, be all the glory in the church. Amen.